And good morning, Life Church. Glad to see you with us this morning. Um, I hope you have a Bible with you. We're going to turn in that Bible to Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. Isaiah is a prophetic book in the Old Testament, a little bit past halfway through your Bible if you're uh, thumbing through trying to find it. Um, this morning, as we continue our series through the Apostles' Creed, um, we're considering the line that says Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. And I hope and pray this morning that spending some time in Isaiah 52 and 53 will help us to think about what it means to confess and believe truly that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Nowhere in the entire Old Testament does the gospel, in other words, what Jesus accomplished through his suffering, nowhere in the entire Old Testament does that shine more brightly than it shines in Isaiah 52 and 53. 700 years before Jesus came into the world, God opened the eyes of the prophet Isaiah to see into the very heart of Christ's saving work. And the heart of that saving work is suffering and substitution. And that's what the prophet Isaiah is going to show us this morning. The prophet Isaiah promises a Messiah who will be pierced and crushed in our place. The prophet Isaiah promises that the righteous one will be bruised in the place of unrighteous ones. The loving shepherd afflicted in the place of lost sheep. The exalted king humiliated and stricken in the place of rebel subjects. That's the message of Isaiah 52 and 53. In church, I just pray that we approach this passage with sincere trembling and awe before the Lord today. What must we believe truly in order to confess truly that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was, as we saw last week, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, what must we believe and understand to truly believe that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate? Let's read in Isaiah 52. I'm going to start in verse 13. The prophet says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Church, this is the word of the Lord for us. Now, there really can be no doubt that the suffering servant that Isaiah envisions and describes here as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, that that suffering servant was Jesus Christ. From this passage, I want to point out five things that Isaiah says about Jesus, the suffering servant who, in the words of the Apostles' Creed, suffered under Pontius Pilate. So let me just lay these five things before us this morning as we think about what it means to truly believe that Jesus did indeed suffer for us. Number one, I just want you to behold the deliberate and definite purpose of God in sending His servant to suffer. In other words, what Isaiah invites us to consider here is the fact that that nothing that happened to Jesus was just an accident of history. Nothing that happened to Jesus when he was tried under Pontius Pilate and suffered under Pontius Pilate and even died under Pontius Pilate, none of that was something that God sort of lost control of. None of that was something that just sort of developed in the events of human history. No, all of those realities were realities that were ordained by the deliberate and definite purpose of God in sending his servant to suffer. Just let me show you in the text. Look at verse 13 of chapter 52. The prophet writes, Behold, and then he begins to speak about what will happen to the servant after the things that happen later in this poem are fulfilled. He says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. Verse 15 adds this, 
Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Right? What Isaiah is emphasizing is that the suffering of the servant, the suffering of Jesus under Pontius Pilate, was no accident. Yes, sinful men like Judas and the religious leaders, they combined and conspired to arrest Jesus. They trumped up charges against him. They accused him falsely and they manipulated the crowds to demand his crucifixion. And yes, Pilate was responsible too, right? He was weak. He was spineless. He feared the backlash that he might get from the Roman government if he let Jesus go. He feared how angry and unruly the crowds were. And so Pilate ordered the crucifixion of Jesus, but none of that was an accident, right? These were events that were ordained before the very foundation of the earth, events that were established and purposed before eternity passed in order to save sinners like you and me. That's what Isaiah is testifying to, right? He's saying never did God's purpose waver or change even as his son suffered because he promised that the servant Jesus would be high and lifted up. God promised that he would be one day exalted. God promised that kings would one day shut their mouths before the exalted servant. And so the one who the crowds railed against will one day silence the masses of history when he appears in glory, and his glory will shine even more brightly because he suffered under Pontius Pilate. This is what Isaiah is saying. God did not tentatively put forth his son, sending him to suffer, hoping for something good to happen. No, Isaiah says God thundered from heaven his promise that the suffering servant shall be high and lifted up. None of this is left to chance. There's no gamble on God's part in sending the Messiah to suffer. It's the first thing we should see. Here's the second. Behold the clear substitutionary mission of God. Now, the suffering Jesus endured at the hands of Pontius Pilate and others who were responsible for his crucifixion, that suffering, it was deserved. It just was not deserved by Jesus. It was deserved by us. However, wonderfully and mysteriously, Jesus endured that suffering for us in our place. And that's why the language of substitution just runs throughout this entire passage. Look again with me at it. Verse 4, surely the servant has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him not his own iniquity, but the iniquity of us all. Right? Substitution is just central to this passage. And so this passage helps us to think rightly about Jesus. Why did Jesus come to earth in the first place? 
right? It was not so that he could perform miracles and heal people and cast out demons, though he did those things. And it was not so that he could teach people how to live good lives, though he did that. And certainly it was not so that he could start a movement of people that would endure until the end of time, though Jesus did that as well. No, Jesus Christ, he came to earth. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary so that he could die as a substitute for sinners. That's what Isaiah is saying. 700 years before Jesus breathed his first breath in a manger outside the little town of Bethlehem, the prophet Isaiah is making it clear the servant is coming to die for the sins of his people in the place of his people. The servant's mission was to serve as a substitute and in the process to satisfy the wrath of God against the sin of his people. The British pastor, the late British pastor, John Stott, he points out that in this way, substitution is at the heart of salvation and actually at the heart of sin. Stott writes, for the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Just pause and process that for a minute. Right? The, the very essence of what sin is, is man inserting himself into the place of God. And the very essence of what salvation is, is God inserting himself into the place of man. And so Stott, he explains, he says, man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. In response, God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone, that's sin. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone, that's salvation. That's the mission of the servant. That mission determined by God before eternity began. It was declared by God through the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus came to suffer under Pontius Pilate and fulfill that mission. But suffering and substitution, they are at the very heart of why Jesus came. Number three, behold the humble innocence of the suffering servant. Listen to verse two again. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now I would call on you, don't neglect the sorrow and loneliness of our Lord as he walked on this earth, right? If you have sorrows or loneliness today, like I think you could take comfort from the fact that your Savior did as well, and he endured those things for you. But what Isaiah is describing here in verse 2, right? he's describing the glorious, radiant, high King of heaven, The one who sits enthroned in heaven while even now a vast multitude of his redeemed people gather around his throne to gaze upon his beauty and to worship him in glory for all eternity. He will be worshiped, but in his incarnation, right, he was humble. And Isaiah says he was despised, rejected, 
a man of sorrows. Like church, in eternity, if you are in Christ, you will not be able to take your gaze off of Christ. In eternity, when you behold Him face to face, you will be so consumed, I will be so consumed by His beauty that we cannot break our gaze, right? We'll just be transformed by that and consumed by that in eternity. But that same Jesus who is beautiful and glorious and who can command the attention of our hearts in that way, He came as a suffering servant. And when He came as a suffering servant... When men saw him, they hid their faces from him. They couldn't help but hide their faces from him. And they esteemed him not and rejected him, the man of sorrows. Consider his humility. Consider also his innocence. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. When Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate and his accusers, he was silent. When they hurled lies and false accusations against him, he was silent. Though he could have spoken a word and refuted all of their arguments, though he could have spoken a word and summoned the heavenly host against those who were falsely accusing him. Like a sheep before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. He allowed himself to suffer at their hands. He permitted men men whom he himself had spoken into existence, he permitted men to afflict him. And he did not open his mouth. Jesus did that to be an effective sacrifice for our sins. Right? Everything Jesus was and everything that Jesus did was holy. All of his emotions were righteous. All of his motives were pure. Everything that he did, he did so that he could offer himself as a spotless lamb, a holy sacrifice for our sins. Number four, behold the suffering of the servant. This is the most obvious thing, certainly, in this passage, but it's also the point of this passage. The Creed says Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, just as God, through the prophet Isaiah, said he would suffer. Just listen to the words that Isaiah uses to describe that suffering. Verse 4, he was stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This is how the suffering that the servant endured is described by Isaiah. The suffering that the servant experienced under Pontius Pilate. Now we should acknowledge this morning that the suffering of Jesus promised by Isaiah, executed by Pontius Pilate, We should acknowledge that the suffering of Jesus, it really has 
both a physical and a spiritual dimension. I think our tendency is to focus on the physical dimension of Christ's suffering. And it's not bad to focus on that. It's, it's right and good, in fact. Jesus was fully human. That means that he had real 100% human bones and skin and flesh and organs. And his physical suffering on the cross in our place was surely excruciating, really beyond our comprehension. So in his physical suffering, he really was tormented. He really was mocked. People spit in his face. He was whipped. He was beaten. He was pierced in the side by a spear. He was nailed to a wooden cross. And he, he died gasping for breath, dying of thirst. And surely the, the physical agony in that was, it was beyond comprehension. But we can't neglect that I think far more intense was the spiritual agony that Jesus endured as he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Because the Bible tells us that as Jesus died, he was forsaken by the Father. Which means that within, within the Godhead, the, the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, within the Godhead that has existed in perfect love and fellowship and union and communion for before, from before even the foundation of the earth, like that that sweet, intimate fellowship was in some way disrupted. We can't explain that. We can't even understand that. But we can know that Jesus took on sin, the very thing that God the Father hates. And so God the Son, who is beloved by God the Father, became, as 2 Corinthians 5 says, became sin. He became the thing that God the Father hates. And someone cannot be loved and hated at the same time. And so as Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, as he hung, enduring that physical agony on the cross, he endured a far greater spiritual agony because he was forsaken by the Father. The Father turned his face away from his beloved Son. For the hours that Jesus suffered, for the hours that he hung on the cross, Jesus endured the eternal punishment that sinners deserve. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, though he himself was without sin. Brings me to the last thing we should note here in Isaiah. We should behold the satisfaction of God in the suffering of the servant. What I mean is, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And it is clear that through Isaiah, God foresaw that he would accept the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. Look at verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. The sacrifice of the servant was accepted. Verse 12, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. God the Father was satisfied by the substitutionary suffering sacrifice of God the Son. Which means that in his suffering, Jesus has completed God's redemptive work. Sin is atoned for. 
Nothing more needs to be done to deal with the problem of sin. No further offerings or sacrifices need to be made. If you sin, when you sin, you need not perform any new religious duties to get back on good, God's good side. If you are in Christ, you are fully and finally and forever in right standing with God because God was satisfied by the suffering of His servant. The servant of the Lord suffered. Just as the creed says, under Pontius Pilate, Jesus suffered. Now, the key question that we've been asking throughout this series as we look at each line of the creed, and as we consider what the Bible says about that line of the creed, we've been asking, what does it mean to truly believe this? Right? If Jesus really, truly suffered under Pontius Pilate, what does it mean for us to truly believe that Jesus suffered? under Pontius Pilate. And we've said just every week, right, that true belief, it involves three things. First of all, it informs your intellect. True belief is in, in something, right? We don't just believe in nothing. We believe in real things, in real facts, in real truths. And so we have to grab hold of those truths with our minds. But true belief doesn't stop with our minds. It moves on to our hands. It commands our wills. And so it determines what we do with our lives and the decisions that we make and the decisions that we don't make and the things that we take up and the things that we put down. But then again, true belief is not content just with what we do. It also transforms our affections. It reorders our hearts and gives us new loves and new delights and new desires. And so what does true belief in the suffering of Jesus under Pontius Pilate look like? We're going to have to look at each of those three things. Let's start with how true belief in the suffering of Jesus under Pontius Pilate will inform our intellects. The suffering of Jesus, when rightly understood, it becomes an interpretive grid through which and only through which we can understand God and ourselves. That was a way overly complicated way to make the point I'm trying to make. Let me, let me restate it for you. Um, we can't understand God without seeing God through the suffering of the servant. And we actually can't understand ourselves without seeing ourselves through the suffering of the servant. Right? If we don't believe in the suffering servant, then we'll never really understand who God is and we'll never really understand who we are. Let me illustrate what I mean for a minute. Let's talk first about how the suffering servant helps us to have a right understanding of God. Well, a lot of people in the world, if they believe in a God, believe that that God is good, right? The goodness of God, that's not something that generally people argue against. There maybe are a few who would have some protests against this idea of the goodness of God, but most people in the world, if they believe in God at all, believe that that God is fundamentally, in His essence, a good and benevolent being. But here's the thing. Like, how do you hold on to the idea that God is good when life kicks you in the teeth? How do you hold on to the idea that God is good when your life begins to fall apart? when you begin to endure sorrow and suffering in your life? What does it look like for God to be a God of goodness when your life is just on fire? Right? You really don't have a category to hold on to the goodness of God unless you have a suffering servant, 
unless you have a suffering servant who has turned evil for good and who has embraced onto himself and in himself sorrow and suffering for you in your place. See, it's the, the sorrow and suffering of Jesus that allows us to maintain belief in the goodness of God, even when life isn't really going all that well. Or consider the sovereignty of God. Now, that's like a theologically loaded idea if there ever was one, right? This idea that God is the sovereign king of all people and all things, that God is in charge of absolutely everything and everyone, right? Most of the time, people are okay with that idea in principle until we start to think about bad things happening to good people. And then we sort of object to this notion that God might be sovereign even over those bad things happening to those good people. But again, the suffering of the servant allows us to understand really all of God's attributes. It allows us to understand the sovereignty of God even when terrible things happen in the world because God sovereignly willed terrible things to happen to himself. Right as Jesus hung on the cross, he endured the greatest evil that God could sovereignly ordain in history, but he endured that for our good so that we can be brought into his family forever. And so the suffering of the servant, like it's, a, it's a lens that allows us to understand everything that God is. We can only really understand what it means that God is love if we consider the fact that God suffered as the servant. We can only understand what it means that God is merciful if we can understand the suffering of the servant. We can only understand what it means that God is good or sovereign or wise or kind or any other attribute of God that you might list. These things only come into clarity when we understand them through the lens of the suffering of the servant. And so we can only understand God if we understand this. More critically, I think, We can actually only understand ourselves if we understand the suffering of the servant. What do I mean when I say that? Like, how is that true? How is that possible? Well, let me put it this way, as simply as I can. Right, if the second person of the divine trinity, the Son of God, if he had to come to earth and live a perfectly righteous life, and die an agonizing substitutionary death in your place, the death that you deserve, the death that I deserved. If Jesus had to suffer the way that Isaiah describes him suffering, if Jesus had to be crushed by God the way that Isaiah describes him being crushed by God, then that is a damning indictment of our moral ability, isn't it? It means we can't save ourselves. It means apart from a servant who would suffer in our place, it is impossible for us to save ourselves. Now, there are people in the world who really struggle with that idea because we look at each other and we think, man, as long as I'm not as wicked and sinful as my moron of a pagan neighbor, then I'm probably doing okay in God's eyes. And so we look at like kind of our portfolio of religious acts and deeds. We think about the good things that we do. And we think about the fact that, man, at least I'm not Hitler or Stalin or somebody like that. And we think, I'm okay. I can't really be in desperate need of a savior like that. Sure, Hitler needs a savior like that, but not me. But the problem with that is that we're looking in the wrong direction, right? We're evaluating our righteousness from the wrong perspective. Let's evaluate it from the right perspective for a minute. I think it's easiest to do that by illustration. Imagine that there's this like single mom raising her only son in like the inner city of like some really densely populated urban area 
Um, she's poor, she's uneducated, but she loves her son, right? And so she's doing everything that she possibly can in order to like raise this son and to give him a chance at life. And so she doesn't have a very good job because she's not educated, no, no training, right? And so really she has to work two jobs just to make ends meet, just to pay rent, to get food on the table and stuff like that. But, but she does it because she loves her son. She works her fingers to the bone because she loves her son. But then it's time for him to start school and she's really troubled by frankly, just how bad, like, the inner city schools where she lives are, and she doesn't want her son to, like, get caught up in the kinds of things that often, like, plague young boys being raised in inner city environments like that, and so she starts applying to, like, all of the private schools that affluent people uptown are sending their kids to, and she gets into one. She's really thankful for that, but it's really expensive. They offer her a little bit of financial aid, but all she has to do is she has to take on a third job in order to, you know, pay tuition and put a uniform on her kid's back, and to buy his supplies, and stuff like that. But she does it because she loves her son. And so every morning for 13 years, she gets up at 5 a.m. with him, gets on the bus with him, rides the bus uptown, drops him at school, rides the bus back to her job, finishes her first job, goes back to the school to pick him up, brings him home, goes to her second job, while he's going to bed at night, goes to her third job. She works her fingers to the bone because she's devoted to the idea of giving her son every opportunity that she can possibly give him. And it works. Right? The kid, like, he, he starts to succeed. Like, the love and sacrifice of his mother, like, it transforms his future. And so he goes to this affluent, you know, private school and he starts to really succeed. He graduates one day at the very top of his class. He's admitted to some like elite, prestigious Ivy League institution. And so he goes to college, this great college. Now, mom, she still has to work for three jobs to help him make ends meet so that he has clothes to wear. He can kind of fit in with the, you know, the richy, rich preppy kids around him. But she does it because she loves her son and she just wants him to have every opportunity that he can have. And again, it continues to work. She's working her fingers to the bone, but he's succeeding. He's thriving. He graduates from college. He goes on to law school. He thrives. He leaves law school, moves to the other coast, and takes a job as a junior partner at a really prestigious law firm in a really big city. Eventually, he gets married. Eventually, he has children. And mom, she finally, after all of these years, She's able to let up just a little bit. Now, by this point in time, she's like nothing, right? Like she's worked her fingers to the bone. Her health is terrible. She's physically falling apart. But it's because she's given everything that she had to give to her son. Now, what would you say if I told you that that son was interested in a relationship with his mother just a little bit? What if I told you that that son, I mean, like he called his mom like on Mother's Day, sent her flowers on her birthday. Every few years, he'd make a trip home for Christmas to visit her. But what would you say about that son if I told you that, like, his commitment to his relationship with his mother was this deep and nothing more? Wouldn't you say? I would say. How dare he? How wrong is that? That he is not living every moment of his life out of gratitude and love for the woman who laid down her life for him. Right? Wouldn't you say that that would be right? That the right response to the sacrifice of this mother would be this son living in, in worship and gratitude. Not worship, love and gratitude towards his mother. And that would be the right response to everything that he has received. Here's the point of this illustration. I think you see it. 
We're the ungrateful son. Everything that we have, everything that we are, everything that we'll achieve is a gift from the God who laid down his life in order to welcome us into his family. Right? The oxygen that is in your lungs right now, that is a gift of your creator to you, to me, we do not deserve it. Right? If you've accomplished something in your life, it's not because you are particularly smart. It's not because you have a really hard work ethic. You might have those things going for you, but if you've accomplished anything at all, it's because your creator has given you those things. And then add on to that the fact that even if your creator gave you all of these resources to make something of yourself from the world's perspective, you're still dead in your sins and trespasses before him. And you have a stone cold heart and eyes that are blind to him. And the only thing that can ever make you alive to him is his gracious pursuit of you. It's sending a son to suffer and die for you. Right? Apart from those things, you're lost and hopeless. But we don't live every moment of every day in love and adoration of the Father who's done those things for us. We don't live every moment of every day with hearts that overflow in gratitude. I mean, no, we might not be Hitler or Stalin, but we're grading by the wrong standard when we think of ourselves that way. If you really want to understand your heart, if you really want to understand who you are, consider the fact that the Son had to die for you. But then consider the fact that the Son chose to die for you. That's the truth of the suffering servant. You really are so bad that Jesus had to lay down his life in your place. But you really are so loved that Jesus chose to lay down his life in your place. You can never understand yourself until you put your finger on that, until you grab hold of that and take that into your life. Do you believe those things with true faith? Oh, church, I pray that you do. All right, I'll go fast through these other two things. Um, what does it look like for true belief in the suffering servant to command our wills? I could say a ton of different things, but let me just say one. This is what Hebrews chapter 2 says. Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Listen to this. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, in this life, temptation takes many forms. Satan is so good at presenting the bait and hiding the hook. He makes us think sin isn't that bad. The consequences won't be that real. Other times, Satan will fix our minds on our sorrows and our sufferings so that we feel almost entitled to sin. We'll say, I deserve this after all that I've been through. But in the face of the schemes and temptations of our spiritual enemy, we have a suffering servant. And because he has suffered when tempted, he's able to help us when we are tempted. So in your moments of temptation, look to Jesus. Consider the gravity of sin. It was so great, so weighty that Jesus had to die for it. And consider how gracious and beautiful your Savior is 
He became like you in every respect. He became fully human so that he could suffer for you. In your moments of temptation, fix your eyes and your heart on the person and the work of Jesus Christ for you. That's how this truth can command our wills. How should it transform our affections? How should it reshape what we love and what we delight in and what we desire? Well, I really can't improve on the answer the Apostle Paul gives us to that question in Philippians chapter 2. Paul, he writes this, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, and now listen to how Paul describes the suffering of the servant here. He says, but he emptied himself, but taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now Paul goes on. Therefore, so as a result of the servant's suffering, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, listen to me. This is what Paul is saying here. He's saying that God the Father has looked upon the suffering of the Son and determined for all eternity what the right response to that suffering is. God the Father looked on the suffering of the Son and he said, the name that is above all names. God the Father, he looked on the suffering of the Son and he said, an eternal crown of glory. He looked on the suffering of the Son and he said, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every knee will bow before him in worship. God the Father looked on the suffering of God the Son and said, that is right. That is true. That is the good response to the suffering of Jesus for the sins of his people. Our question this morning is simple. If that is how God the Father responds to the suffering of God the Son, how dare we choose any other response? How could we choose any other response? How dare we worship anyone else? How could we worship anyone else? Pray with me. Lord, I pray that you will so captivate our hearts with your glory that we will choose to worship you. I pray that our vision of your sorrow and suffering will lead us to rightly exalt you to the highest place in our hearts. I pray that our vision of your suffering for us will rightly lead us to treasure you above all things, to worship you as the one who does have the name that is above all names. I pray that it will lead us to gladly bow our knees to you and to worship you with our lives. 
Jesus, we praise you for suffering for us. Help us to do that with true belief today. Pray that in your name. Amen.